Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 is the text for this morning. The title of the message is A Worthy Walk. A Worthy Walk. For six hours the day beforehand, he meticulously prepares his uniform and his mind for duty. Every day of his duty, he gets a fresh haircut. And when he's on duty, he will not vary from his command a single step for a single second, no matter the weather, the hour of the day, the day of the week, or the number of people that are watching, even through the night when no one watches at all. He is the unflinching guard the Sentinel, a member of the 3rd United States Infantry Regiment of the United States Army, the men and women who guard the Tomb of the Unknowns at Arlington National Cemetery just outside our nation's capital. Every single minute of every single day since July 2nd, 1937, the old guard has stood guard. And there is nothing casual about the way that these men and women perform their duty. When the Sentinel comes on duty... He walks exactly 21 steps south, down, across the black mat that's laid across the tomb of the unknown. These 21 steps represent the 21 gun salute, the highest honor that's given to a fallen soldier. When he reaches the end of his 21 steps, he turns east and salutes the tomb for 21 seconds before he turns and walks back north, 21 steps back across the mat. He there turns and faces the tomb once again, saluting for 21 seconds. Over and over, the sentinel repeats this drill until his shift is completed. When the job is well done, it's nearly impossible to discern any movement from the soldier's head or his weapon. Strict training ensures that the guard will be unflinching and unwavering in his duty, no matter the heat of summer, the driving rain of December, or the frozen snow of February. The guard will remain posted, and the steps will remain perfect even when there is not another soul in sight when no one is watching to see if the sentinel remains diligent at midnight's watch. Suffice it to say that being among the old guard of the United States Infantry Regiment, you have to learn a new way to walk. You can't walk as you used to walk. You don't walk the same way you walked before you guarded the tomb. Likewise, neither should we who are in Christ, who carry the guard for the name of Christ, walk the same way that we once used to walk. Paul will make that clear in our text for this morning and really for the rest of our study through his letter to the church at Ephesus. You see, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul set forth the believer's position or the believer's identity with all the blessings and all the honors and all the privileges associated with being a child of God. We refer to these chapters, chapters 1 through 3, as the indicatives, simply meaning that they explain all that God has done for us in Christ. They're explanatory in nature. The remaining three chapters, where we jump in this morning, beginning in chapter 4 through chapter 6, these chapters give the consequent obligations or the requirements that are associated with being a child of God. We refer to these chapters as the imperatives or the commands. In other words, what Paul is saying in chapter 4 through chapter 6 is in light of what God has done for you, now walk this way. Now walk differently in light of what God has done for you in Christ. If the key word in chapters 1 through 3 was wealth, we talked about our wealth, what we have in Christ, what God has sovereignly secured for us, then the key word in chapters 4 through 6 is walk. Walk. In these last three chapters, Paul will encourage us to walk in unity. We're going to talk about that this morning. Unity in the body of Christ. We're a family. We have to live harmoniously in this family. We're to walk in unity. We're to walk in purity. We're to walk in harmony. And we're to walk in victory. We'll look at that as we close Paul's letter to the church and emphasis out, talking about putting on the full armor of God. Chapters 4 through 6, the conclusion of our study, the next six months of our study, deal primarily with what we call indicatives, the commands. In light of what you have, in light of your wealth, in light of what has been secured for you by God's own sovereign initiative, now walk differently as a result. With such an emphasis on doing in chapters 4 through 6, I think it's important before we ever launch out to remind you this, that the 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 indicatives, chapters 1 through 3, 
make it possible and fuel the imperatives or the commands. But the imperatives, those commands, can never earn you the indicatives. Does that make sense? The indicatives, what is true about you in Christ, are the fuel for the imperatives or the commands. But the imperatives or the commands can never earn you the indicatives. It's important that we understand that as we as we launch out into uh, six months or so worth of talk about how we're to live, what we're to do. We're not earning anything in our doing. We're not gaining any of God's favor by our doing. All that is secured in Christ. We're just talking about the new way that we walk in light of or as a result of what God has sovereignly given us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you don't understand that, you miss the whole point of Paul's argument, which really, Paul's whole letter is an argument. He's posing an argument, what he's doing, that we might understand it and take it by faith. So with that said, let's turn our attention to our text for this morning, here where Paul urges the Ephesians and us as well to maintain the bond of peace by walking in light of our wealth. I urge you to stand if you have the ability with us this morning. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, pens the following words. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, encourage you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You may be seated. I encourage you about how we're going to look at the text this morning. We're going to look at verse 1, and then we're going to look at verse 3, and then we're going to come back and look at verse 2. I haven't lost my marbles, uh, just as we're working our way through the text here. We're look at verse 1, verse 3, and then verse 2. Meet Turn your attention, draw your attention to verse 1. If you're taking notes this morning, point number 1 in your outline is this. Your wealth should change the way you walk. Your wealth, what you have in Christ, what has been sovereignly secured for you, should change the way you walk. Look at what Paul says in verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Here again, Paul refers to himself as a prisoner. He did that back in verse 1 of chapter 3. He does it here in verse 1 of chapter 4. He'll do it a third time in chapter 6. He'll refer to himself as an ambassador in chains. See, Paul became the Lord's prisoner on the road to Damascus, and he never sought to be free from that divine imprisonment. I think it's very possible that Paul is reminding us of his imprisonment again to present us with a realistic picture of what he was willing to endure to model for us what a worthy walk looks like. Subsequently, to help us understand what it might cost us to live a life that is characterized by a worthy walk. You ever heard someone say, doesn't matter what you believe as long as you live right? I mean, that's kind of the, the going spiritual fad in the world that we live. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you live right. In Christian circles, we might tweak it a little bit. It might sound a little bit something like this. Why do we have to make such a big deal about doctrinal precision? Save all the theology. Just give me Jesus. I mean, we have bumper stickers that say that kind of thing. Just give me Jesus. And while I understand the sentiment, that is absolutely the opposite of what Paul is saying here in our text. You see, if we do what we do, because we think what we think, as we've said in previous weeks, that what you believe is massively important. What you believe determines how you behave. I want to write that down. What you believe determines how you will behave. That's just another way of saying you do what you do because you think what you think. You behave the way you behave because you believe what you believe. Therefore, right doctrine is essential to right living. Doctrine. Kind of a eight-cylinder, ten-cylinder Christian word. Simple meaning. It just means teaching talk about doctrine. We're just talking about the teaching of the Bible. What does the Bible teach us? What does the Bible have to say? That's doctrine. It's the teaching of the Word. And apart from doctrine, we don't know what God is like, and we don't know what kind of life He wants us to live. 
Therefore, doctrine is massively important. We can't just toss doctrine aside and say, give me Jesus because we don't understand who Jesus is or what Jesus expects from us apart from a right understanding of doctrine. And we said last week that doctrine rightly understood always leads to doxology. When we, when we understand what God is communicating to us, when we understand what he's teaching us in his word, it always produces in us, if we understand it correctly or properly, an attitude of worship, praise, and adoration that leads to or is the fuel for obedience. Make sense? What you believe is massively important. Doctrine is massively important. Doctrinal precision is massively important. Splitting hairs at particular points when we study God's word and we hear God's word taught is massively important. What we say is important, but sometimes what we don't say is just as important. Doctrinal precision is important because it influences or impacts the way that we live. Those who set aside biblical doctrine and theology also set aside sound Christian living. Those who set aside biblical doctrine and theology also set aside sound Christian living. And so Paul calls us here in verse 1 to put our doctrine to work. What he's saying is, in light of chapters 1 through 3, now walk in a new way. Just like that sentinel walks in a different way as he guards the tomb of the unknown soldier. So we in Christ, who hold the guard of Christ, are to walk in newness of life. Listen to Paul's tone as he begins his exhortation here. He says, I urge you. I urge you. Love that word there. Uh, the word urge is the Greek word parakaleo. Holy Spirit. The, the Greek word Holy Spirit is paraklete. You might hear that in there. The, the idea of the word urge here has the idea or the sense of coming alongside of someone and extending them a hand, extending a helping hand. Uh, one pastor said this might be one of the most tender expressions in the New Testament. Paul's encouraging us to walk alongside him. Think about migrating geese for a second. We have geese that kind of hang out in our backyard area. Amazing birds. And these birds fly at speeds of 40 to 50 miles an hour for thousands and thousands of miles every year, but they don't go at it alone. They fly in formation because as each bird flaps its wings, it creates an updraft for the bird behind it. That shared labor translates into the ability to fly upwards of 70% farther in distance than if that same bird were to go at it alone. You see, the Christian life in many ways is similar. When we have a common purpose, we're propelled by the thrust of others towards the same goals. And it's with that heart that Paul says, I urge you, I come alongside you, I want to extend a helping hand to walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling. Look at what Paul urges us to do. He encourages us to do just that. He encourages us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. You see, this is a new walk for us. Remember, we once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked, gratifying our lust and our passions and our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. But now, because of God's mercy, because of his great love, because we've been made alive together with Christ, we're able to walk in a completely different way. Remember, when we talk about walk in Scripture, it has the idea of a lifestyle. What is our lifestyle? Are we walking according to the flesh? That's our lifestyle. We're walking according to the Spirit, speaking about a lifestyle. Likewise, Paul is speaking about a lifestyle. We are to walk as a lifestyle in accordance with the great calling to which we have been we're to walk in a manner that's worthy or consistent with the incredible calling that we have in Christ. In other words, Paul is telling us that the doctrinal input, chapters 1 through 3, must be matched by an equal practical output of that doctrine in our lives. That important idea of input and output is contained in the word worthy. Look at your Bible there. We're to walk in a manner worthy. Greek word translated worthy there is the Greek word axios. It's where we get our English word axiom. It has the idea, or the, the, the root word has the idea of weight to it. 
axiom to be of equal weight. In a mathematical equation, when we speak about the axiom, it indicates doing something to both sides of an equation so that both sides remain true. I make a change over here, I have to make a subsequent change over here so that both sides of the equation are balanced. Both sides of the equation remain true. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying that we should endeavor by God's grace to live lives that are equal with or consistent with the great blessings and the immense wealth that he has labored to describe in chapters 1 through 3 that subsequently belong to us in Christ. Our doctrinal input and our practical output must be balanced. That's what the idea of the word worthy means there. It doesn't just mean great or much of. It means to be balanced, to live a life worthy of the calling is to live a balanced life. Doctrinal input, practical living output. We walk differently. James Montgomery Boyce, perhaps one of my favorite pastoral influences and commentators, if you have the ability to read anything, James Montgomery Boyce, I trust you'll be thoroughly edified. I would encourage him to your uh, Christian library. Again, as we read, we always want to be discerning readers. Eat meats without bones. Okay? You should be listening to me thinking, eat the meats, but out the bones. Okay? We don't ever want to put our discernment guard down. We always want to have that up. James Montgomery Boyce is a helpful, helpful pastor, helpful author. This is what he has to say about balanced living, speaking about doctrinal input and practical living output. He says, there are some Christians who are primarily intellectual in nature, thinkers. They love books, they enjoy study, they delight in the exposition of the Bible's great doctrinal passages. This is a great thing. It's proper to love doctrine and to rejoice at what God has done for us in Christ. Paul himself obviously did this, and we can tell from the way that he has unfolded his doctrine in the first three chapters of his letter. But the intellectual believer, the thinker, faces a great danger and often has a great weakness as a result of failing to overcome this particular danger. Here is the danger. He can love doctrine so much that he stops with doctrine. He reads the first three chapters of Ephesians, and he delights in them, but when he comes to chapter 4, he says, oh, the rest is just application. I know about all that. And then he skips ahead to the next doctrinal section and neglects, perhaps, what he most needs to assimilate or what he most needs to do. On the other hand, the thinkers. On the other hand, some Christians are primarily oriented by experience. They thrive under the teaching found in the second half of this book. They want to know about the spiritual gifts and their own exercise of them. They're excited about Paul's teaching about family and other such things. They say, that's, quote, where it's at for me. They find doctrinal selection dry and impractical. If that's you, then over the last six months you've been thinking, I just can't wait until we get to chapter 4, all this high theology. What? Get, get to the, I want to do something. We kind of get nervous and fidgety because we want to do something. Paul says, wait. You're going to have all kinds of ability to do something, but what you do has to be informed by a solid foundation. Okay? So we've got the thinkers. Here are the experience-driven people. Those who say, I want to learn about the family and how to put it all to work. That's where it's really at for me. The voice goes on and he says, You see, for each of these, there is potential error. Doctrine, that's input, without practice, that's the practical Christian life, leads to bitter orthodoxy. It gives correctness of thought without the practical vitality of the life of Christ. Practice without doctrine leads to aberrations. It gives intensity of feeling, but it's feeling that's apt to go off in any and oftentimes the wrong direction. What we need is both. As Paul's letter and the whole of Scripture teach us, we can never attach too much importance to doctrine, for it's the doctrines of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrines of salvation, and the doctrine of the Christian life that all things for the Christian life spring. At the same time, we can never attach too much importance to practice, for it's the result of doctrine and the proof of its divine nature. What we must have is both, and both work in balance. Think about a scale. Doctrinal input, practical output. We want those two to be in balance. We want to love both, but 
we must realize that practical output, the Christian life, just the everyday obedience in the Christian life must be informed by a rich, deep, abiding theology. Do you see now where the, let's get past all the, the, the doctrinal precision and the, the theological stuff, just give me Jesus. Do you see now where that comment or that statement errors? I hope so. We need both, doctrine and practice, and we need both in a balanced measure. When our doctrine and our practice are balanced, we walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And what a high calling we have been called to. We've been called to reflect the glory of God like the moon reflects the glory of the sun. So the question is this, are we being a good reflection? If we are to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling, chapters 1 through 3, that Paul labors to expound our calling. What you've been called from, what you've been called to, all the power that you have, all the resurrection power of Christ that's available to you for the Christian life, I mean, a high, high calling. Namely, to reflect the glory of God back to Him, just like the moon does the sun. The question is, are we being a good reflection? Are we being a good reflection? Here's a challenge to us. Here's some application. Stand and ask yourself, before you speak, before you act, or before you decide, are these words... Are these actions and are these motives worthy of the great purpose for which God has conceived for me when he called me from the rest of men to be a saint and his son? Are these thoughts, are these words, are these actions, are these motives consistent with the calling that has been given to me in Christ? Or do they fall short? If they fall short, run from them. The worthy walk that Paul specifically has in view here in our text is that of maintaining unity within the body of Christ. Maintaining unity within the body of Christ. Let me draw your attention to point number two in your outline there. That's simply this. Maintaining unity in the body of Christ is the responsibility of every believer. It's not just the responsibility of some people that have great relationship building skills. It's not just the responsibility of an elder board or pastoral staff. It is the responsibility of every redeemed believer without exception. That means you, and that means me. We are responsible to maintain, to foster, to encourage unity, harmony within this body right here. We'll go home this afternoon and we'll walk in our own homes, and that is our family unit. But we are part of a greater family, the redeemed body of Christ. We are a family unit here. And just like we are to pursue peace, just like we are to pursue harmony, just like we are to pursue unity in our own homes, we are also to do that here. We are to strive for it. We are to be eager for it. We are to be zealous for it. We are to have a do-whatever-it-takes mentality to pursue it. Save sin. We don't sin to maintain purity. We don't overlook sin to maintain purity. Everything outside of that, we are to be diligent to pursue. Maintaining unity in the body of Christ is the responsibility of every believer without exception. Let me draw your attention again to verse 3. Look there with me. Paul says, Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice the adjective that Paul uses here in verse 3. Christians are to be eager, he says, to maintain peace in the body of Christ. Eager, it's that Greek word, spudadzo. kind of rolls off your tongue. It's fun to say, spudadzo. It's translated elsewhere in the New Testament as endeavor, or diligent, or strive, or effort. That exact same word, eager, if you have the ESV in front of you, is translated elsewhere, endeavor. Put that in there. Endeavor to maintain. Be diligent to maintain. Strive to maintain. Make great effort to maintain unity. Has an element to it of intensity, of haste, of urgency, even a sense of crisis to it. Do this. It suggests a zealous concentration, a diligent effort, an unrelenting attention and persistence. It's it's to give your maximum effort, to do your best, to spare no effort, to hurry on, to be eager to pursue peace 
in the body of Christ. Let me just press pause right there for a second. Does that describe our attitude? I just gave you a whole smattering of adjectives there. Do those describe your attitude and my attitude? I'm, I'm in the crosshairs here. The word speaks to me. I'm not just a talking head here. Does it describe my intensity to pursue peace in the body of Christ? Does it describe your intensity to pursue peace in the body of Christ? I'm going to draw just a few things to your attention here about this Greek verb, eager, spudadzo. It's in the present tense. That implies a continuous effort. The pursuit of unity in the church isn't a one-and-done event. As believers, we're to keep on making every effort. We're to keep on seeking to guard oneness in the body of Christ. And you may be sitting here, and there may be someone over here who has an offense against someone over here, and someone over there that has an offense against someone in the back, and you'll be thinking to yourself, yeah, I tried to pursue harmony once, and they shut me down. Friend, try again. And if that doesn't work, try again. And if that doesn't work, get on your knees and try again. Not before that person. Get on your knees before the Lord and go back, go back, go back, go back. Do whatever it takes to pursue unity and oneness in the body of Christ. There should not be fractions of any sort, shape, or size within our relationships in the body of Christ. That's unbecoming of the high calling to which we've been called. We're to keep on. This is a continuous effort here. The only way that we can accomplish unity within the body of Christ is by daily or continually, and here this thing's a little bit, dying to ourselves and relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us. Eager to maintain. Eager's in the present tense. It's in the active voice. This indicates that the pursuit of unity is to be a deliberate action. It's to be a volitional choice that all believers make in their own heart to carry out. You see, maintaining unity requires that we continually work hard at it. If it were easy, everyone would be doing it. But in the world, there's fraction in relationships, and it's just you go to your corner, I'll go to my corner, we just tolerate each other, we just kind of, you do your thing, I do my thing. We smile when we pat each other in public. That's not to describe relationships within the body of Christ. This verb here is in the active voice. It's to be a deliberate action, a volitional choice. You may have heard... Maybe you can even relate to the old adage, to dwell above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. Maybe we can relate to that in some manner. You see, the natural tendency in every relationship this side of eternity is towards disunity. Unity doesn't happen by chance. Unity doesn't happen by default. Unity happens by design. Unity happens with intentionality, continuous effort. Third thing that I want to draw your attention to here about this little verb, eager, it's plural. You know what that means? It means you. Not not your neighbor, not the person sitting down the pew from you, not your spouse. It means you and me. This is the responsibility of every believer, to be eager. Eager. Are you eager? Look at the word maintain. Paul says that we're to be eager. Eager what, Paul? Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That word maintain or preserve, if you have the New American Standard, it's the Greek word terero. It means to guard or to warden. Think about uh, a jailer. Jailer keeps a, a, a cautious eye on those to whom he is to watch. It means to guard or to warden. It implies keeping an eye on or watching over with great care. Unity within the body of Christ, if not properly guarded, will naturally entropy. Why? Because each one of us, me included, without exception, though we're being sanctified, we have a natural and sinful bent towards self. In light of that, Paul exhorts us to guard or to watch over unity in our relationships. We're to guard or to look over, to warden unity just like we would guard or watch over or look after a precious treasure. Because unity is a precious treasure in the church of Jesus Christ. 
just as if you were entrusted with a precious treasure. You wouldn't let it out of your sight. You wouldn't put it somewhere where you knew it was compromised. You would watch over it with all diligence. Likewise, we are to look after, to watch after, to warden, to guard unity. Paul says. In just a moment, we'll turn our attention back to verse 2. And there Paul outlines four character qualities that we must be growing in, in an increasing measure if we're to pursue unity within the body of Christ. But before we get there, before we look at those four qualities back in verse 2, which is why I saved verse 2 for the last year, let me suggest one of the ways that we can best pursue unity in the body of Christ, and that's by watching our tongues. Watching our tongues, which unfortunately have set many a churches ablaze. James says this, a familiar text to you in James chapter 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. They're so large, and they're driven by strong winds, yet they're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue. It's a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and is tamed by man, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. For from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. And then James concludes verse 10 with this phrase. Brothers, it ought not be so. It ought not be so. One of the best ways that we can pursue unity, aside from the four very specific character qualities that Paul is going to enumerate in verse 2, is by watching what goes out of our mouth. Ephesians chapter 4 will be here soon. 29. Paul says, Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is useful for building others up, that it may give grace to those who hear. We oftentimes think about unwholesome talk as those four-letter words that we try to hit the pause button on the remote before our children hear them. But Paul defines unwholesome talk entirely differently. Paul defines unwholesome talk as anything, anything uttered that isn't building in nature. Because there are no idle words. If it's not building, it's destroyed. It's a wrecking ball. If what's coming out of my mouth is not edifying, strengthening, encouraging, or building someone up, then it's like the crane that is swinging a wrecking ball. And it's destructive in nature. We be careful with our mouths. Let me make a point of encouragement here. Input equals output. Okay? If you are memorizing, meditating on the Word of God, hiding it in your heart, I can promise you that is what will be coming out of your mouth. How can I make such a bold promise? Because Luke tells us that in Luke 6.45. He says, out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Disrupted unity is guaranteed if the tongue isn't bridled by the Spirit. In light of the clear charge here by Paul to guard and to watch over unity, we would do well to pray with David in Psalm 141, he said this, he said, God set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. That's a good prayer. That's a good prayer. Psalm 141, verse 3. Set a guard over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Notice that Paul uses the word unity here. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. He does not use the word uniformity uses the word unity. We can have unity of spirit without uniformity. See, we're all uniquely different. There's nothing cookie cutter about us in here. We all have different tastes, different gifts, different ministries, different temperaments, different hobbies, and we have to be careful with this one, different preferences. We're all different. There's nothing cookie cutter about us. Paul says unity, not uniformity. Not that we would all have the same preferences, look alike, talk alike, have the same loves, likes, and dislikes, hobbies, and preferences. It's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about a oneness of heart and mind. 
as it pertains to the gospel, as it pertains to the word of God, as it pertains to the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, unity would be easy if we were all the same. And the reason behind that is, is because we don't have a problem loving ourselves. If you were just like me, I'd have no problem loving you because I don't have any problem loving me. And you don't have any problem loving you. The problem with love comes when you have to love someone that's not just like you. And when I have to love someone that's not just like me, then it becomes challenging. Relationships can become a little bit grisly there. God hasn't made us all the same, yet he's called us, those who've been redeemed by Christ, despite our differences, saved by the grace of God, sealed with the spirit of Christ to pursue oneness. You see, God gets great glory by bringing unity out of diversity. We're a really diverse group in here. But God gets great glory out of bringing unity to great diversity. Unity, not uniformity. Paul calls us to be eager. Eager to what? Eager to maintain. That's to keep or to guard. What? Unity, not uniformity. Unity of what? Unity spirit in the bond of peace. You see, peace is the quality that binds us together. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 9. He said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The word bond there, it's actually the same word that's translated ligament uh, in Colossians chapter 2. Paul tells us, as Christians, to hold fast to the head, that's Jesus, from whom the whole body, that's us, the redeemed, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments. It's the same word bond there, ligaments. See, we are intricately, in Christ, bound to one another. God, Jesus specifically, who is our peace, that's what Paul said back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, remember? Jesus Christ is our peace. We, the body of Christ, are intricately bound to one another in Christ, who is our peace, and as such, we are to pursue peace in our relationships with others. How are we doing there? How are we doing there? The point that Paul is trying to make here in verse 3 is that although true unity among believers already exists because of the sovereign work of the Spirit, we are to practically labor, to guard, to preserve it, to maintain it. Just like harmonious relationships in our homes take work and don't happen automatically, so harmonious relationships within the church take work and they don't happen automatically won't be long before someone hurts your feelings or before you hurt someone else's feelings. As a matter of fact, you may be sitting here this morning and someone else may be here that has hurt your feelings. At times, there's going to be disagreements. There's going to be frustrations. There will be disappointments. Some of you here this morning might be on each other's, quote, last nerve. Our relationships are to look markedly different within the body should not be division. We are to pursue unity, whatever the cost, save sin. We draw your attention to point number three. We are to maintain unity by growing in the fruit of the Spirit. Maintaining unity is the responsibility of every Christian without exception. How are we to do that? That's why I've placed verse number two last here. Just a side note, it's not because Paul wrote it improperly. Paul didn't write it out of order. I'm not fixing anything here. Just for the flow of the message, we're looking at verse 2 last here. We maintain unity by growing in the fruit of the Spirit. Look at verse 2. Paul says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You see, the unity that Paul urges upon us this morning begins with character. Begins with character. The worthy walk that Paul describes includes humility and gentleness and patience and what we'll call forbearing love. Forbearing love. Paul uses very similar language in Colossians chapter 3. Both, both letters, by the way, Ephesians and Colossians, were written while Paul was in jail. He has similar things to say to each individual church here. But listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. Don't turn there. Just, just give me your ear. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 15. Paul says, put on then. He tells us what to put off before then. If you want to go look at that later, he tells us all kinds of things we need to be putting off. He says, well, in light of that, here's what you need to put on. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, 
humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. That's not an option, by the way. You must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together. There's the word binds again, ligament. Binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The peace of Christ is ruling in our hearts. The peace of Christ will rule in our relationships. The peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. We're going to live at peace with each other and maintain unity amongst the body of Christ who must be growing in the four spirit-given graces that Paul directs our attention to here in verse 2. Let's look at those. First, he brings to light humility. The first characteristic that we must be growing in if we want to have a worthy walk that promotes unity in the body of Christ is humility. It's interesting to note that humility was despised in the ancient Greco-Roman world. They hated it. They saw it as a weakness. It was admired and sought after to be a great-souled man or to be competent and self-sufficient. And I expect that, I suspect... And I suspect this because no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And I'm more like you than I am dislike you. I'm more similar than I am dissimilar. I suspect that there are some among us this morning that prize self-sufficiency and prize competency more than we prize humility. Because I struggle with that as well. Humility is that grace that when you know you have it, you've lost it that grace that when you think you've got it it's just slipped through your hand like sand at the beach why would Paul emphasize humility first simply put pride is the number one enemy of harmonious relationships pride is that wedge that gets hammered in uh, and just splits like wood relationships it drives a wedge because it's you after me first. It's me before you. Humility describes that quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of your own self-importance. We all struggle with that. We all struggle with an inflated sense of our own self-importance. Humility isn't thinking less of yourselves. Rather, it's not thinking of yourself at all. Humility isn't just debasing yourself. That's false humility not just degrading yourself and trying to pull yourself down. That's pseudo-humility. Humility is not thinking of yourself at all. Humility is the recognition that all we have and all we are are due to God's grace. Paul talked about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, why, if everything you have has been given to you, why do you boast as if you had it on your own? Why do you boast as if it wasn't given to you? Paul exhorts us in Philippians chapter 2, this is a familiar text, he says that there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, these are things which should describe our relationships in the body of Christ. Paul goes on and he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. That defines unity. We're not uniformity, unity. Being of the same mind. Wanting to glorify Christ above and beyond all else. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. You see, pride says me before you. And actually, pride very quickly says me and not you at all. Humility. We need to be growing in humility to pursue unity. Christ. The second thing that Paul highlights is that characteristic of gentleness. If we want to have a worthy walk that promotes unity in the body of Christ, we need to be growing in gentleness. Your uh, translation may say meekness, which is a right translation. When we think about gentleness and meekness, we oftentimes think about weakness, a weakness, or we think about it as being timidity or cowardice. It's certainly, though, not the idea of the original Greek word here. The original word here has the idea of kindness, sweet-spirited, self-control. 
in, in secular Greek that the word translated gentleness here was used to describe a soothing medicine or a gently blowing breeze, a soft wind, even animals that had been broken and tamed. You see, a tame horse still has all of his strength, he still has all of his spirit, but he's completely obedient to the tug of his master on the reins. That is what we should be. You see, gentleness, instead of being a weakness, is probably better defined as power under control. Strength under control. Gentle was, Jesus was gentle, and he definitely wasn't weak. But he did exercise power under control, strength under control. He was gentle and lowly of heart. He said, take my yoke upon you, for I'm gentle and lowly of heart. Jesus was tender and compassionate with the bruised and broken, but he was strong and forceful with the proud, self-righteous Pharisees. Gentleness and meekness describe the attitude of the person who submit to God's dealings without rebellion and submit to man's unkindness without retaliation. Gentleness and meekness describe that attitude that submits to God's dealings without rebellion and to man's unkindness without retaliation. A gentle and meek person is mild-mannered, able to control his temper. In other words, emotions don't fire at will. Describes a person that's never avenging, never vindictive or self-defensive. This might sting a bit because it stung me this week as I was thinking about it. People who are angered at every nuisance or inconvenience to themselves know very little about gentleness and meekness. Those who are inconvenienced by every nuisance, quickly angered, know very little about gentleness and meekness. Why Solomon said this in Proverbs chapter 16, he says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a sin. Gentleness and meekness. Third, patience. The third characteristic that we must be growing in if we want to have a worthy walk that promotes unity within the body of Christ is patience. Patience is the ability to suffer long. It's the opposite of having a short fuse. It's being long-fused. To be long-fused. We oftentimes struggle with patience because we struggle with pride. We think that we're the most important person in the universe, and subsequently everything should revolve around us, and so we become impatient very quickly, oftentimes with our children. Patience is that long-suffering which makes allowance for others' shortcomings and endures wrongs rather than flying off the handle in a fit of rage or desiring vengeance to settle the score. Patience. Patience doesn't make snap judgments. Patience doesn't let others have it, so to speak. Patience prays before it speaks. Patience encourages before it rebukes. Interesting, patience is the very first quality of 1 Corinthians 13, love. Love is what? Patient. Love is patient. And then lastly, Paul draws our attention to forbearing love final characteristic that we need to be growing in if we want to have a worthy walk that promotes unity in the body of Christ is forbearing love. Paul calls us to bear with one another in love. Some translations say showing tolerance for one another. To bear with someone, to bear with another, means to walk with them. All their sin, all their shortcomings, their quirks, and all. To walk with them. To be bearing with them forbearing. Paul encourages us to make allowance, to tolerate, to bear, to endure the faults and failures of others, all of our differing personalities. Remember, unity, not uniformity. All of our differing abilities, all of our differing temperaments. We're we're, we're to make adjustment for that, to make room for those things. That doesn't mean that we make room for sin. doesn't mean that we don't call sin, sin. It mean that we don't encourage others to pursue radical holiness and that we would not open ourselves up for others to encourage us to pursue radical holiness. But it does mean bearing with another. To stand with them. Sin, shortcomings, quirks, and all. Forbearance doesn't mean maintaining a facade of courtesy while inwardly festering with resentment. It doesn't mean just putting a smile on but inside kind of grin and burying it. 
Rather, it's the Spirit-empowered positive love for those who irritate you, disturb you, and inconvenience you. It's that unqualified and unselfish love that willingly gives whether it receives in return or not. This is a, not a natural response. This is a supernatural response. This is not our natural tendency. This is the tendency of those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. This is what it means to have a new walk because this is not describing the way that we once Paul just prayed at the end of chapter 3 that his readers, and thus we, would be rooted and established in love. And now he addresses his desire for them to put it in action. Be rooted and established in love. Now, go do it amongst yourselves. What about you? Are you walking worthy to your calling? Are you diligently seeking to guard and to preserve peace within the body of Christ? Are you growing in humility? gentleness, patience, and forbearing love. Maybe there's a relationship here this morning that you need to reconcile. I would encourage you to do it, and to do it without delay. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5. He said, if you're offering your gift at the altar, in other words, if you're here in worship, and you remember there that your brother has something against you, leave your gift. In other words, set your worship at the altar aside and worship me by making wrongs right, and then come back. That's how much importance, that's how much emphasis Jesus places on unity in the body of Christ. Leave your gift here and go settle the account with gentleness, with patience, with forbearing love, with meekness, with your brother. And then come back. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never even begun this worthy walk. If that's you, we want to encourage you this morning, come to Christ. Confess that you're a great sinner. Confess that Jesus Christ is a great Savior. Acknowledge that you can't save yourself, that no doing, no putting into action in chapters 4 through 6 is going to bring you any more righteousness, is going to bring you into any more of a right position or a right standing with God unless you've repented of your sin, turned from it, and put your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And if you've not started that worthy walk, we encourage you to do that this morning right where you sit. Friends, our relationships in Christ 